want to greet you. It is a privilege to be here today with the people of Bethlehem. It's been quite a while, I believe, since I've been here. I haven't seen some of you since, uh, I guess, a number of months ago. So greetings from Floyd. I, uh, I'm sorry to hear the COVID cases are popping up here. We have had some of the same thing there. You heard about Floyd this morning. I uh, spoke to him on the phone this morning. He was still in the hospital. And he was hopeful about getting out today, but he's not pretty sure that he will. So uh, I guess we'll pray for him and other people as they come to mind. But, uh, we do live in interesting times these days with uh, the issues our country is facing and our nation and these COVID things. We have this ongoing church discussion there about how to handle these requirements. And so that requires a lot of wisdom and brotherhood to get through. So we're in an interesting chapter of life right now. Somebody posted a picture a while ago about there was a rope ladder with some stringy board steps across the stretch of water and they said, food. Uh, the end of point, this is the, uh, the home stretch of 2020. That's what it looks like. <coughs> so we do have interesting times. Uh, I don't know what you do when you run into things like this, but one thing I started doing back in about July was reading the book of Revelation. And uh, I found it quite instructive. And I've been reading it over and over. I haven't for the last month or so, but it has been food for thought. And I know that by now I should probably be a declared premillennial or amillennial, but I'm really not. I'm, I'm finding inspiring things there, and there's a lot more things that I don't understand than what I do. But I'm convinced that... Uh, it offers a lot of hope to the church, to us as individuals, to believers. I know sometimes the obscurity and the arguments surrounding this book of mystery discourages some from reading it. But Revelation 1 3 does say, Blessed is he that readeth, and that they hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. This book is to be read, it's to be kept, it's to be heard for the time of these truths is now. And uh, we can learn a lot from this book. And so I hope you had a good week this week, but even if you hadn't, it's probably okay because uh, come confusion or tragedy or sickness or whatever else, we're reminded again that God is still on the throne, God is still steering this thing, and He knows where He's going with it, and all is well in the end. Uh, he's still in control of this. I'm glad we have scripture this morning. Scripture is a story, it goes from Genesis to Revelation, and it, it begins somewhere, it ends somewhere, and, and through this book there's markers of what God is doing, there's predictions of what God will do, and so we can trust in that, we can understand it, and be blessed by it. I believe we probably share the same worldview this morning, and there, there's two distinct realms at play here today. We live, and are very familiar with this physical realm. We live in it every day. We interact with it. We have physical bodies. We have material concerns. We obey the laws of nature and gravity that, that govern our, our life. There's this physical universe. There's also the spiritual realities that many people don't even acknowledge or we are very aware of and have understood to a certain level. It's the realm of God. It's the realm of what He's about. It's angels. It's uh, eternal justice. It's God in control and his plans at work, this ongoing spiritual war that happens between the good and the evil. Now, man was created as a physical being, but we also share a very real part in the spiritual side that we are less aware of. We have an eternal soul, 
we are, an undying spirit. Our spirit is like this portal, this doorway to the eternal side. We're in reality working with both here. And uh, God made it that way. God is a spiritual being that created spiritual things and material things. And uh, I think about it sometimes when God made the world and the universe, where he must have put it and how he viewed it and how this works together is something physical or something temporal or something with limits on it. I look at it a little bit like a fishbowl on a table. Uh, it's its own little space, it has its own little environment. And the things that govern the things inside do not govern the things around it. But there it is. It's in full view. It's almost like a terrarium. You have turtles and salamanders. And the space, the limits are for what's inside, but not for what's on the outside. And everything inside is in full view of what's around it. And I think in the beginning, uh, when God made the universe and Earth, uh, there was a seamless connection between what was inside and what was outside, what was governed by time and space, and what was on God's side that was not limited by that. And in the beginning, man walked with God, and God walked with man in this seemingly uh, seamless interaction. They were comfortable with each other, they interacted with each other. Uh, I wonder sometimes if angels and men interacted uh, in a much more open, free way. I don't bother them to say that. Talks about God walking with man. It seemed like there was much, much more awareness and interaction then than there is now. And so in the separation thing, between these two realms, the closing of the door between what was earth and what was heaven, um, God no longer walked with man in that open way, and man no longer interacted with God in the free way that he did. Now, even though man lost his ability to see God, God did not lose his ability to see man. But sin worked a blinding effect. You see, you have Adam, and then Cain, and then some other Adam's children. By, by Adam's grandchildren, the huge generations they had then, they were seriously blinded. They had almost no recollection or no acknowledgement of God. It was, it was closed because some of those people lived almost through the time of the flood when the earth was very dark and very evil. And there was a... Uh, closure between the two, and, and this closure was triggered by man. It was almost as man and his sin slammed the door shut. But it wasn't as though man had his hand on the doorknob, able to open it any minute. Um, this was not in their power to do. Once that door was closed, it was on God's side that, that the door had to be reopened. And God could have hid himself as long as he chose from man. And I guess unless God would have decided differently, we still would have been in the dark wondering about the other side, the other place. But God was not willing that that should be. And so early on we have God steering things in the direction of a reunification and reopening of the door. And we're pretty far along in history now. We're all the way up in year 2020. Um, and God, through His words, left many markers of things He's been doing. And in his prophecy, has been leaving things that we can look forward to, that he said we can look forward to and, and watch for, knowing what to expect. And as I read the book of Revelation, the things that stood out to me are very clear. In this world, it's evil that is the imposter, it's, it's sin that's the alien, the devil is the usurper. And this battle that we're facing is simply to live and surrender to the king until 
this whole thing finds its completion and not fall victim to the course of this world because God is going to bring it into judgment. And one day very soon, the things that we look around and cannot see will become just as plain and obvious and real as the chairs we're sitting on here this morning. So I'd like to invite you today to read from Revelation 4. I'd like to read this whole chapter. This, if you remember the context and the uh, chapter by chapter of Revelation, the first chapter is dedicated to Jesus introducing himself to John, and we have the two chapters about the scriptures and the description that from Jesus' point of view, what he approved of and what he did not approve of. I'd like to take a quick look at chapter 4 and then use the platform to just look and see what God is doing in this pathway from the closed door of Revelation to the reunification of, of the future that we're looking forward to. We'll read this chapter and describe what John saw here. Revelation 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me. I'm assuming he's referring back to the same voice he heard in chapter 1 when he heard the voice behind him speaking to him. This voice said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a starting stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, and sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty feet. And upon the feet I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face of a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We just look at a timeless picture. Uh, in the beginning, before the beginning, this was. In the end, after the end, this will be. I believe it is right now as we speak, as we're here this morning. And before looking specifically at what John saw here, I'd like to remind us of a couple of symbolic truths in verse 1. And the first one said, the door was open in heaven. I, I, John was looking at all the gloomy things that Jesus was describing about the churches, and he turns from that and said, I want you to look at this, changing of the scene, changing of the direction. Now, that door that was closed in, in, Revel, in Genesis, that Adam no longer had free access to God, uh, it's open. And it was a door that Adam couldn't open. Only God can open. 
And here he chooses to show John through it. And he's hoping for John to see through and for man to go through and experience the other side. But this voice that said, the second thing here, the voice that said, come up here and I will show you some things. Now, just think back a little bit. How God revealed himself to men from Genesis through the end of the Old Covenant. There's various times in the Old Testament where God chose to reveal himself to men. Uh, one example is, is Jacob. And so Jacob was sleeping with his head on a stone, and this vision came to him. And this ladder was going all the way up to heaven. At the very top of the ladder, God was standing, and the angels were going up and down. And God spoke to Jacob and said, Jacob. And he spoke what he said there about him being the God of Abraham and calling Jacob a specific purpose in life. And God opened the door and came through and showed himself to Jacob. We have Moses. Moses saw the burning bush, and Moses came close to it. And there was God speaking to him out of the bush. We see Mount Sinai when God came down out of heaven, I guess, to this mountain to speak to the people, and he showed himself in thunder and lightning and, and incredibly powerful and fearful things. You see Isaiah, and God coming to Isaiah, Isaiah was in the temple, and it's, it's like the wall opened up, and he saw God revealed there speaking and uh, calling him to a certain purpose. You see Ezekiel, and the vision he had of God coming across the plain and the chariot and the wheels of, of fire enfolding themselves in picture of the four beasts around the throne, which very much had the same faith as, as the picture of its own revelation around the throne. And God came down. And the New Testament has something different. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says, uh, John writes, I knew a man in Christ. It doesn't say, some people think this man has been referring to himself, his own visions. He said he heard a voice Caught up, caught up, he said, from the third heaven, and heard a voice that was unlawful, things unlawful to others. So here's God saying, whoever this was, come up here. Come to my side. I'll show you some things. And here in Revelation, the same thing, the door is open, and, and God said to John, come over here, come in here, and I'll show you some things. And the door was open. Now it's not God that's coming down to our, our place. It's calling us to his side and showing us things that that are and that we will experience as we move into that realm. This is what John describes. We have this passage, and it seems to me if you would lay this out in a spatial uh, order, you would see beginning with the center and then going to things surrounding and things beyond that, almost like uh, circles around the most important part of describing to go through Revelation. Uh, this chapter, it's all thrown, and this to me is the center of the picture. It's the center of everything that is, the epicenter of all that's been created. It's the source of things. This throne is the seat of authority of everything that exists. And the one that sits on it has the right to command, to control, to direct the affairs of everything that, that is, the universe. And this is the throne that Satan wanted. He led an insurrection to get it. He wanted to sit there himself. And praise God, God kept it. He's still sitting on it. He's still doing what God does. He did not feed uh, it or give it up in any way to the imposter. It's a place of judgment. 
Everything that has a moral responsibility will answer before it someday. Because God is the ultimate judge of all these things. This is the source of life. If you read in Revelation 22, it talks about the river of life proceeding from the throne of God. If you read what this river does, it goes through heaven's landscape, I guess. There's, there's the tree of life on both sides. The leaves are for the healing of the nations. The fruit is for everyone to partake of. And this, this throne is the source of life. It gives life to all that relate to it. This throne is always the source. It's always the center of all that is. It's the focus. And this does not just extend to heaven's borders. It extends everywhere that anything is. Down in Cusco, uh, in Peru, the Inca thought, this was the center of the world. This was uh, where everything started. Some of the Spaniards came to realize that they had a short view of, of what really was. Uh, down in Guatemala, when you drive along any highway, there's mile markers, kilometer markers. And you go south, they're counting up. You go north, they're counting up. East and west, the same way. When the center of Guatemala City is the central square, and in that uh, layout, there's a Capitol building on one side, a Catholic church on the other side. And one room of the Capitol building, there is a, a stake in the floor. And from that stake, all the roads in Guatemala get measured. You go north and count up all the way to 600 and some, and you start running to Mexico. You go south and east and count up to get to El Salvador. You go west and count up. But that's only good to the border, and that's where it stops. That's where that influence goes away. Then there's a new system in place. But the throne of God is the epicenter of the axis of everything that is, anywhere there is, anything to be talked about. Uh, God is on that throne, and God is in control, and that is the measurement of everything that is. And that's what John describes. And he says he saw him sitting on the throne. He doesn't describe a figure here, no person with a head and a feet. He just talks about one sitting on the throne like a jasper and a starting stone. Uh, he does not even attempt to describe the person of God. There's something indescribable about that. And human pen cannot do it. If you want food for thought, these two stones that were used to describe the person of God are also the very first and the last stone on the priest ephod that he wore on his chest in the Old Covenant under the, the tabernacle system. You can think about that. Maybe there's things to be learned there. They describe it here as a color, a picture. But this being there is eternity and body. He knows no beginning and no end. This being there is the sum of all the energy and all the power in all the universe. I've often wondered, can somebody create something bigger than himself? Now, we take things to make things. But can God have created something that summed up as larger than himself since everything comes out of himself? I don't think he can. So you think about nuclear power. You think about the energy that's contained in atoms and what it took to set off an atom bomb. You take all the matter that is in all the universe and think that God's power is greater than that. He's the sum and the excess of all these things. He is also the standard of all the virtues that man admires. 
We admire things like justice. Well, all the justice that is is measured by himself as a standard. We admire the love. All the love that exists, he is the measurement of it. He is the standard of it. He is the creator and father of everything that exists, living in the inanimate, heavenly, earthly. And that's what John describes in this revelation. Describe the rainbow around the throne, this arc of emerald. I guess it's sort of a greenish light. That's how I imagine what John saw. It's interesting to me that chapter 5 expands on this picture. And chapter 5 says, In the midst of the throne that we're describing here, so the lamb as it had been slain. And so in the very place of majesty, of justice, of power, of eternity, is the very thing that supplies man's deepest need. It's a symbol of humility and sacrifice and provision. And ever after that, all through Revelation describes the throne of God and of the Lamb. Both together in that throne describes it. And there sits man's sacrifice and solution and atonement and advocate in that place. That's what John saw. Then John begins to describe the surroundings. He saw four beasts. You read Ezekiel 1, I believe it is. The four beasts, the four faces, are very much the same faces. Remember what Ezekiel or Isaiah heard in Isaiah 6. The seraphs and flying around the throne and crying out, Holy, holy, holy. And here they're doing the same thing. They're, it's the same cry. It's a secret to worship. And I believe it's going on even this morning. He described 24 elders here. So I imagine around the throne these prominent places, these prominent places for being to sit. And if you've ever wondered who these are, these 24 elders, you might learn something from Revelation 5, verse 8. The song that they sing may describe who they are. It says, uh, You have redeemed us. We're talking here in, in verse 8. Uh, they sang nine. They sang a new song. Thou art worthy to take the book. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us into our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. It reminds me of Luke 22, where it says, I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father has appointed to me. And you will sit and judge the twelve tribes of Israel. That's exactly that's the same thing that I imagine it. As representative of the twelve tribes of the old covenant and the twelve apostles of the new, representing the faith in both covenants, coming together in representation of least around this throne and the people's worship to God. These are redeemed that are around the throne. Then we see around this immediate vision and on out further away. Uh, 511 talks about angels, 10,000 times 10,000. That's 100 million right there. Then it says thousands of thousands. Every thousand thousand, an extra million besides. And so he's talking about a countless number. We saw the throne, the beast, the 24 elders, the angels. And then we see later uh, in 512, every creature in heaven, earth, sea, from the highest angel in heaven to the lowest microbe in the compost heap. If they have the ability to worship God, they're doing it. Because everything that's created uh, worships and praises the King. And here's God in the center, uh, center of it all. And so here we see a picture of the epicenter of the spiritual side of things that exist. So we live in the material side. This is describing something beyond what we can see in our physical eyes. 
And I believe that this understanding should shape our way of thinking. And there's a few things, I think, that whenever we think about these two realms that we have to do with, we should be aware of. One is simply this, that you and I and all men live all the time in full view of heaven. I believe that's true. Um, if you've ever seen a one-way mirror, you know what I'm talking about. A one-way mirror is the one that you look on one side, looks like a mirror. You can't see past it, but if you're on the other side, you can see right through it. And everything that's on the other side is in full view. I saw advertised a birdhouse. A birdhouse, yes. The back was a one-way mirror and it has suction cups. You can stick it to the outside of your window. And you have full view into this birdhouse and what's going on in there. I'd like to get one sometime. You have a bird coming and going, laying eggs, building an nest, so on, feeding their young, with no idea that there's eyes six inches away watching everything she's doing. I saw a bird feeder the same concept. You open the window, put this thing actually inside the living room with this one-way glass, and birds have to fly into, the, into your house, and you can watch what they're doing and get a close-up view. And it wouldn't be a bad idea if we would look at the sky and think of it as a one-way mirror. I can't see out very well, but everything out there can see in. And God sees in. And I believe more than God sees in. The angels in heaven, it says, rejoice when a sinner repents. Why? Because they see it. They're aware of it. Scripture says that by the church is made known unto the heavenly beings the manifold wisdom of God. How? Well, they see it. They're looking at our working together. They're looking at our harmony or lack of it. They're seeing how we live on this earth. And they see here um, God's wisdom at work. Sometimes I wonder if angels come and worship with us. I don't know. We don't know. The men live in full view of heaven. We need to know that God is aware and engaged in everything that's happening on earth. He knows world affairs. He knows hairs on our heads. He knows our family needs. He knows our personal difficulties. He, he is not aloof and he is not distant. He is well aware. Now, I believe we also need to keep in mind that the separation between earth and heaven is not very great. It's not very great. We tend to think of heaven as far away because we don't see it. There's no real palpable everyday proof that it's out there. Jesus went up, so we think it must be up there somewhere. But I believe it's just a different dimension. It's a different scale. It's a different, uh, I don't know what. God can come through any time he wants. Our prayers go across as soon as we pray them. And when we're close to God, we sense His presence. We sense His joy. And I believe we live in a physical body that always is going to tether us to earth as long as life is in it. We have a body that has uh, a spirit. And as long as the body has life, our spirit is tied to it. But immediately when that spring is cut and the body dies, we, we all of a sudden will know that Heaven was very close. Heaven is very near. This bond is broken, and we are uh, in the other side where God has prepared a place for us. We're never far away. I'll show you a couple of things this morning. 
Although man rebelled and closed that door, God never left the driver's seat. And God never changed his mind about his end goal, what he was about. His intent to do things in a way that would lead man to full reconciliation and togetherness with him. And so for the first couple thousand years after Adam's sin, man was uh, in a state of decay. But Noah found grace. God found one man left to go across the flood and establish a nation that was just and give humanity and mankind another chance. After the flood, it seemed like Noah's descendants quickly forgot God. Things went downhill fairly quickly with the culture around the, the, uh, the region in the Middle East, I guess it is today. But he found another man, Abraham, called the friend of God, who kept, kept that vision alive. But it was only after Israel left Egypt and were led out of there by Moses that God went about introducing again heaven to earth and his plan to introduce those of us who live on earth to heaven. So he's doing it. He's introducing himself first and then taking us to himself second. And there's a little foreshadowing here, and, and he does this, and he led them after introducing himself back in Egypt with the plagues and the, uh, and the miracles and the delivery. He led them out to Mount Sinai and introduced himself again with, with laws, with plans, with expectations. And among the many things he gave them at that point, he gave them a plan for a tabernacle. And when I was young, uh, tabernacle studies were about as boring as anything I could imagine. This was old stuff. It was in the past. It had no real bearing in my life at this moment. And uh, I never really liked it. But I learned something just very recently. You probably knew all along, I just never did. That really is fascinating to me as I see God beginning to put together something that men can relate to in their, in their feet, search for eternity, and, and their interaction relationship with Him. Now, in, in Hebrews, it says that God told Moses to, to make this thing exactly like the pattern he had described in the mountain because they were going to be an example and shadow of heavenly things, speaking of the priesthood and the model of the tabernacle. Now, I want you to remember quickly, I can give you a chance to remember the things that John described in heaven. He described the throne, he described the four creatures around the throne, he described the 24 elders. Around that, later described seven lamps of fire. I think we read about that around the throne. He also described the seal of glass uh, before the throne. Um, the altar is there. Remember the altar, and the angel came and all offered incense and the prayers of saints. All that was there in the description in Revelation four and a couple of following chapters about heaven. And so this morning, quickly, I went and printed off a brief reminder for myself of the tabernacle. You can't see it because uh, it's too far away and I don't have a projector here. But if you walk into the tabernacle, there's this surrounding fence and the main tabernacle is inside. The first thing you would come to is a bronze altar where the burnt offerings were made. Then you would come to a bronze labor, which is a play, I guess it's a bowl of water where the priests would wash their hands away and out of the temple. 
you threw into the holy place. In the holy place, there were several things. There was a table of still bread on one side, with 12 loaves of bread every day. And on the other side, you would have the menorah, which was set on the lamp there. They were supposed to be kept burning all the time. There was uh, the golden incense altar. Just before you would go into the holy place, there was the altar of incense. Then there was a veil that separated this place from the holy place. Inside the veil, there was the Ark of the Covenant. On the Ark, there were two cherubim with their wings that were spread in the altar of the Ark of the Covenant. Woven into the tapestry were two other cherubim in that holy place. I'm not uh, mistaken in my memory. And those were all part of the tabernacle. Now, if you would compare this with Revelation 4, what would you find? What's there is that the very things that we read about in Revelation are inspired and woven into God's design for the tabernacle. Back in Exodus chapter 20 to 30 or somewhere in there. There's the Ark of the Tabernacle. That's where God rested. That's his, his dwelling place. That would correspond to the throne of God. You have the four cherubs on the ark, in the tapestry, corresponding to four that are secretly worshiping around the throne. You have the seven lamps candle stand there, the seven lamps burning. Corresponds to seven lamps burning with fire around the throne. You have the altar of incense and the altar of heaven. You have twelve loaves of showbread, representing twelve tribes, one revelation at twenty-four speaks around the throne, representing, in my view at least, the twelve of the old and the twelve of the new. There's two things missing. The first thing that's missing is the bronze altar where the burnt offerings were made. Praise God that's missing because now the sacrifice is a living sacrifice. He's on the throne. It's the throne of God and of the Lamb. That's been fulfilled and taken care of. And the veil is missing. That was fulfilled and taken care of. There's no more veil between those coming to worship and the one on the throne. And to me, it's a beautiful and mysterious thing that God did. Taking what's around himself in heaven and firing it into a small replica in the tabernacle so that men could have a place and have an object to come to and worship and begin to introduce themselves and familiarize themselves with, with God and with God's dwelling place. And Jews came from far away and Gentiles came from further away. And God was taking the nation in the way of worship around this imagery that he inspired for them to understand. Now, the limitations of that was obvious. It was small. Not many people could go there at a time, perhaps. It was far away. And God had a much bigger revelation coming. And then he said this to the Samaritan woman in John 4. Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, and you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit, and in truth, for the Father seeks us to worship Him. He said, The hour cometh, and now is. The hour is that God will no longer only meet with man in a tabernacle. The hour is that men can expect to find a place of communion with God everywhere He is, everywhere He wants to worship. We don't have time this morning, but to me, the American woman was seeing fulfilled the beginning of the prophecy of Daniel about the coming 
kingdom that would be set up and established in the days that that uh, stone being cut out of the mountain without hands, striking the feet of the image, and filling the whole earth. I believe it's the kingdom that Jesus established, first of all, in the hearts of men, and the greater and more fulfilled way, a permanent thing that he will take us to, and all after all these others are done, this one will still be intact, and we can uh, live there with him forever. But the kingdom of Jesus revealing as it comes into the New Testament is a much fuller and greater revelation of what's true in the presence of God. One thing that's true in the presence of God is a perfect submission and obedience and uh, surrender to the one that sits on the throne. And that is the essence of the, of the nature of the kingdom of God. God can forgive sin. God can deal with our shortcomings and lack of understanding. One thing that God will never allow to participate in His kingdom is rebellion and insubordination. That is one thing that has to be yielded before we ever set foot inside the door. And so on that basis, the kingdom of God comes. As we surrender to the one on the throne, we become part of this ever-growing uh, thing that God is doing on this earth. The same submission, the same devotion, the same worship around the throne we participate in here. Last Wednesday evening, uh, Elton, the other director before that Elton, um, brought a topic about Christians and politics. And here's the example of the way we normally view the kingdoms of this world. If you look at a map, there's lines on it. They separate jurisdictions. The nation is this, the nation is that, the nation is the other. And they all have a name, they all have a president, they all have a system of laws and punishment, they all have um, a way of doing things, certain ex- expectations. And in the time of Israel, they were another nation, God's nation, with their own borders, their own laws, their own way of doing things. So when Jesus comes, and Jesus says this kingdom is going to be different, it's like in all these nations, on all the maps you see around the whole globe, you can draw a little circle. And inside all these things, there's another little thing. And everywhere the kingdom of God comes, with its allegiance to the throne in heaven, with its allegiance to the laws of God, its submission to the the oversight of, of Jesus, the following of the Lord. There's a new identity. There's a new entity happening. And it's not that we aren't Americans, but we're primarily something else. It's not that we stop being Guatemalans. It's because we're primarily now participants in a, a new kingdom, a new thing. And uh, we are interested in the country we live in. That's true. Especially weeks like this week, there's a lot going on. The elections matter, the economy matters, civil services matter. But our primary identity is the kingdom of God. And we're interested in that. We want to see what God is doing. We want to see what He is doing around the world and how His church is doing and how God's people are doing and what we can do to promote that well being. Because in the end, that's the one that will stand. So that's part of God's unfolding plan from way back then to way out there and bring this kingdom together around His throne as in Revelation 4.
Now, I'm blessed to be part of that people, part of the people of the kingdom of God. And I believe we're on a path of full restoration. At first, God revealed Himself to a few. And then He designed a tabernacle, a place that He could dwell in a way that the people could relate to Him. Now we live in a state where man can be reconciled with God and the Spirit can have a permanent residence in our heart. But there's still a coming day. This day, in, in Matthew 24, and Jesus speaks about 31, He shall send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. First Thessalonians echoes that the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. In Revelation 21, 3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. Now, this day of complete unification is coming. We don't know when, but it's coming. No more separation. No more one-way glass where God can see in and we can't see out. No more distance. And this is God's goal. This is what God will accomplish. And it cannot fail because God Himself is doing it. He will make sure we get done. Revelation 4 is a beautiful picture, a beautiful place. God is on His throne and all is well in heaven. But not all is well on earth at this point. The scripture is very clear that the last days of earth will be a bumpy time. There will, things will happen that we will not particularly, particularly look forward to. And maybe for different reasons. You know, Revelation talks about the plagues, the persecutions, the suffering. Maybe for various reasons. One is God always gives time for men to repent and reminders for men to repent. It seems like some of the things that God does in Revelation is simply the jolting and the shocking wake-up call for men to think. And you ran down the same, but men did not repent. And so they go on to the next thing. Some of these are consequences of men's sinful actions. And some would be the wrath of God against the sinful humanity who refused to, to bend the knee. Now, many people feel that the church will not be around when the worst of these things happen. And the truth is that. Uh, through the last 2,000 years, the church has gone through unimaginable suffering already. When you compare what some have gone through, I can't imagine for them it was anything worse. And perhaps it's an invention or at least a promotion of our Western churches that uh, the church will go out easy before this is banned. Somehow we have a right to that. But Jesus did say that. The calamities, the wars, the pestilences, the plagues, these are the beginning of sorrow. This is just like the tremor before the earthquake. This is the shaking before the big thing comes. Now, I believe we're living there. We're living there in the, in the beginning of sorrow. I don't know how far along this we are. But it is a comfort to me that whether we go through most of it or none of it or all of it, God is still fearing it. And it's a comfort to me to see what God has done in time past. One thing he did was when Noah predicted a flood that would destroy the world, God made sure that there was a place for Noah to be. Uh, when Moses predicted plagues to Pharaoh, Israel lived through some of those plagues, but not all of them. 
they were seated with their dinner experience. When Elijah came before Ahab and said, it's not going to rain for three and a half years, he knew that he was going to live three and a half years without rain. But God prepared a brook and a raven and a widow and made sure he came to it. And God will always have a place for his own. We are physical people in a physical world. We are not blind, thank the Lord. We're not blind this morning to what's coming, what's over there. We're not blind to God's realm. We can live in the light of Revelation 4. God is on His throne. Heaven was made for us to come into and enjoy. And we can live on earth today and know that the evil is short. Sin will be cut off. Uh, the devil's work will end. God will prevail. It would be good for us, I guess, to look at life like uh, Reverend Babcock. He was a minister up in New York oh, about 120 years ago or more. And he used to walk along the American side of Niagara just to see the beauty of the world. And he would leave his house and tell his wife, I'm going out to see my father's world. And he wrote poetry, and after his death, his wife found a book of poetry. And in that book, this, this poem that he entitled, This is My Father's World. And we sing it sometimes. The last verse goes like this. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died should be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. We maybe sing that without thinking about it. I'm under no illusion that this is going to get better and better until all of a sudden Jesus Christ is good enough to come back. Some people have that view of theology. That's not according to what we see in Scripture. But I do believe there is a unification coming of we who are created to live on, on the earth. And God has designed a permanent place for all of us to enjoy together. God is still steering, He's still in control, and He will not fail in His intention to 